I was in the ninth grade. My grandfather was dying, my great-grandfather, and a teacher uh, saw that I needed help. And I would go and sit with her. She kind of doubled as the counselor. I would sit with her every day and just tell her everything that was going on, what was on my mind. And it took me from being a very angry, distant uh, young teenager to being okay with being open with people one-on-one to allow them to help me. After Geronda Montano faced a series of challenges as a child, caring adults made a major difference in her life. Now, Geronda is that caring adult for numerous kids. She's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Jordan Montano joins us today for a conversation on prevention, parenting, self-care, and connection. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, First Check. Win This Year is brought to you by First Check. First Check home drug tests help you protect loved ones from the risks of drug abuse. First Check is the number one pharmacist-recommended brand. It detects up to 14 illicit and prescription drugs and provides over 99% accurate, easy-to-read results in just five minutes all in the privacy of your home. Go to firstcheckfamily.com and use code WINTHISYEAR to save on your order. Those of you who have listened to our first episode of Win This Year, which was released on September 10th, World Suicide Prevention Day, will remember our next guest from the second segment of that show. Joanna Montano is a parent, coach, nearly 20-year veteran of the prevention field, assist master trainer, public speaker, life skills facilitator, and Not My Kids chief programs officer. She joins us now on Win This Year. Geronda, welcome back to Win This Year. Thanks for having me back, Shane. It's really good to be in here with you. I can't believe it's taken this long. We're almost 10 episodes into the podcast. It's taken this long to have you on the show because, number one, you have a very powerful story. Number two, you are a prevention Jedi. I know no one in the field who is better at what they do than you are. And number three, after listening to you on that first episode, you sound like you belong on the mic. You sound like you actually should have your own radio show or podcast. All of that is very kind of you, Shane, and and (laughs) touche. In order to understand your work in prevention, who you are, what drives you, all of that, it's important to understand your story as a person. Where and when did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? I grew up in L.A. I was born in Inglewood, California, and for the most part, lived in Inglewood a little bit, lived in L.A. That's the home I go back to, the actual house that I grew up in, uh, with my grandparents and great-grandparents. I had a very loving family, big family, 
even though it was just my sister and I, uh, the two kids of our parents, we had lots of cousins, lots of aunts and uncles, and the house was just always open. So people were always coming and going, lots of food, lots of celebrations, uh, just, a, just a really happy, active family. In the neighborhood I grew up in, over time, it changed. Uh, lots of uh, drugs and violence, gangs, and the people, the L.A. that people know based on music or what they've seen on TV or, you know, what's in popular media now, uh, this is also the L.A. that I grew up in. Crenshaw and Slauson are my main streets. And uh, as we know, what just recently, recently happened there, uh, that, that pretty much sums up kind of the, some of the characteristics of the neighborhood. So it sounds like it was a balance. Family-wise, it sounds like you had some really strong, healthy, wonderful, amazing people in your life. But also, growing up in that neighborhood, there were some challenges as well. With some of what you saw growing up, would you say that what you, you know, what you experienced during your childhood, did that have any influence at all on your decision to go into prevention? Huge amount of influence. I was actually a part of the second class that D.A.R.E. was given to. Uh, the class the year before us, they graduated from us for, from it, sorry, and we did it the second year. And I was always really interested in being that helper in the community. There was a program that happened before D.A.R.E. I was a part of that too, drug, uh, drug resistance program as well. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to be that person in my school and in my community that could be the leader and, and stand up and say, you know, we can all do this. It's okay for us to be positive people and and uh, not that I saw that everyone was being negative at the time. I just wanted to be very positive. Now, things change as the years go by and as I start to see the neighborhood deteriorate specifically because of drugs. And, uh, and, and that definitely changed my view of, well, how can I get out of this? And so I really strove to be a good student, to make good choices, and very early on made a decision in my life that I would never do drugs and I would never drink alcohol. And uh, kind of accidentally on purpose, I became a preventionist. When I say accidentally, you know, really taking that specific path, I wouldn't say was my focus, but the intentions that I made really early on definitely led to that focus. And I understand that as well. I mean, here I am six and a half years into doing this. My degree is in journalism. Yet there were those pieces all along, like you said with your story. If you look back, you can see those things starting to move you toward that direction. Were there any adults in your life growing up? You already mentioned your grandparents. Were there adults that you credit with um, you know, the person that you've become today or adults that you look back on and the way they influenced your life or they impacted your life that you want to – you credit them with some of who you are today? whether it's your grandparents, whether it's coaches or teachers, who stands out to you when you look back? And what is it that they did that stands out to you, that helped you as a kid? You know, almost every adult in my life had a huge influence on me, including my parents with their substance use. I had teachers who saw my potential, who saw the gifts that I had, and they kind of helped me to get shipped off to a school outside of my specific neighborhood. Um, they... They saw me as a gifted kid, got me tested, and said, yes, you need to go to a school with gifted kids. So I credit them for my education beyond, you know, just my small community. 
my grandparents, obviously. I mean, my grandparents were just my rocks. My great-grandparents and grandparents, they lived right next door to each other. So it was like having one big house with two front yards and two backyards. <laughs> and and uh, they always made sure that I understood that I was loved, that I always had what I needed. And uh, if if I felt like there was something that I couldn't do, they always kind of just picked me up and said, no, you, you've got this. And coaches, coaches were a huge influence. Once it was discovered that I had a talent for running, my coaches never allowed me to be anything except for what my potential was. And that that was huge. Um, But you know, Shane, the one thing that I always talk about is the fact that there were so many people around me who saw these gifts that I had that always made sure to point that out. And because they believed that I was gifted and talented in a lot of different areas and they pointed it out, it just sort of filled me up to believe like, okay, all right, there's something that they're telling me I am, so I must be that. And and that was just neighbors, friends, parents, teachers again, coaches as well, and just kind of the adults who were just around me. And you mentioned neighbors, you know, sometimes that adult that ends up standing out in that child's life, you know, there's the ones we expect, grandparents, parents, teachers, coaches, and that's fantastic and important. But sometimes a, a, an adult may have no idea how much influence they have in the life of a child that's not even in their family, not a student of theirs. When you said neighbors, that stands out to me. And that shows as adults just how wide our impact can be, sometimes beyond what we even think it's going to be. Now, you mentioned, you know, with your, with your parents' substance use. For me, having gone through that myself as someone who is in long-term recovery has given me a greater level of understanding when I work with kids, when I work with adults or whoever it is that may be struggling with drugs and or alcohol. Do you think that made a big difference in your ability to be empathetic when working with the topic of substance use, when working with kids or adults or anyone else? Do you think that had a profound effect on your ability to be a helper, making it more personal to you? It's really personal. I spent a lot of my younger years watching my mom kind of head down this path and none of us seeing what truly was coming and then watching her hit rock bottom. There were many times when my mom was uh, in jail or she spent time in prison as well. And I would long for having a mom there with me or having a mom that would go to school to my events. And what in the beginning was anger. I was very upset with her her being absent so much um, turned into sort of this determination, I'll never be like you. And, and as I then moved into the field of prevention, what I realized is this gift that my mom left me, which is that empathy and that ability to understand that no one wakes up and says, you know, I want to be addicted to crack cocaine or I want to be an alcoholic. Nobody wakes up and says that. It happens because of choices, sure, and then the choice is taken away when your brain is now wired for addiction. And so, um, you know, now when I look back and when I have the opportunity to connect with kids, and I don't know if every kid that I'm in front of has experience with a parent or family member who's using, but what I do know is when I speak, I speak carefully so that they can understand I have experience as a child of a of addicted parents. And it is very powerful to have that empathy because we, we're all human. People make mistakes. And oh gosh, I could go on about that forever because as I'm standing in front of many kids, they're in the process of making mistakes. And so they could they understand that. 
what it feels like to make a mistake and what it feels like for people to judge you for the mistakes that you're making. And I judged my mom and my dad big time. And now if I can give that to a kid who gets what judgment feels like, if I can give that to them and help them to understand that that empathy makes a difference in the relationship and how you can help someone else, then I feel like, yes, that brings me closer to my purpose in prevention. And that's huge, separating the person from the behavior. I got a letter from a student one time that I spoke to. I shared my substance use and recovery story, and months later got a letter that said, my dad is an addict, and your story, your presentation began to help me understand why he did the things that he did. But I love the combination with which that you, I see you personally approach it. You will readily, admittedly call, you will, you will call it what it is. It's an unhealthy behavior. It's an unsafe behavior. But what you do is you differentiate it from the person. You don't say this makes you a bad person, especially when you're dealing with kids who, like you said, may have that going on at home. And you, and you don't want to drive that disconnection between them and the parent further. Or you may be talking to kids who are going down that path themselves. And a lot of times they're doing that because they're already torn down enough. They're trying to self-medicate what they are feeling, what they don't like, what they're feeling. But it's so important to differentiate that from, you know, this is the behavior, this is the person. I think that's so crucial. I always felt really guilty sitting in a classroom as a young person, like I did something to create my parents' substance use. And so it always felt like it was on my shoulders, like people were going to judge me because of what my parents were doing. And I was always afraid of what an adult would say like how they would respond to me but if they knew that my parents were using. And I don't want a child to ever feel like that. I don't want a teen. I don't want anyone sitting in front of me to ever feel like I'm judging you based on something, a choice that someone else has made. And I'm not going to judge you based on the choices that you're, you've made either. And it's just, you know, I want to create that comfort in that prevention conversation. You know, just it, it's just a lot more effective and a lot more useful in that kid's life. Kids really do seem to shoulder a lot of what their parents are going through as well. Whether it's substance use, it's a divorce, it's financial problems. Kids have that very, you know, self-centric view of the world and a lot of times they assume that if something's going wrong, they must be behind it. But kids going through a substance use issue with their parents, that's difficult enough. But the last thing you want them to think is, you know, somehow you're you you are to, at fault for for what's going on here. Right. Right. They should never have to, to shoulder that, or at least if they are shouldering it, they should have someone in the other ear telling them, no, that's not your fault. Now, we talked a little bit about some of the groundwork that was laid for you to head into prevention. Some of the things that you grew up with, uh, the fact that you liked being a helper early on and things like that, the fact that you made that pledge to yourself you know, to remain drug-free when did you actually specifically end up moving into prevention? Because I know your bachelor's degree is in broadcasting. Your master's is in public administration. So when did the move directly into the field of prevention and behavioral health happen? I think it started in D.A.R.E. in the sixth grade. No, probably in D.A.P. in the fourth grade. Um, that There was something that always drew me, like I said, to helping. But then I was also always a mouthpiece. I, I participated in, in um, oratorical contest, and I would always be chosen to speak in front of the entire school from a really young age, like maybe first grade, kindergarten, I could even think of in the classroom. So the groundwork was laid with understanding that I had the ability to reach an audience, and that's not something that I created. That's just a gift you know, that I have. 
when I ended up getting into prevention, which now was a little over 17 years ago, specifically in prevention, it was a job opportunity that, that I saw. Uh, the description almost looked like it was written specifically to me. Someone sent it to me and said, this sounds like you. And I applied for it and got the job. And that was that position. I was to go in and do small support groups with students who were homeless or in transition. They were from kindergarten through eighth grade. And it was on various topics like conflict resolution, really to help reduce substance use or to prevent substance use. But it was specific topics to their life that they may be dealing with. And the students either self-referred or they were referred by an adult. And that kind of, I was like, absolutely. I definitely want to help kids who might be sitting in a classroom concerned about other things that are going on in life. And they can't really focus on what's happening in class because they need someone to listen to them. And if I could really take that to where that specific desire to do that came from, I was in the ninth grade. My grandfather was dying. My great-grandfather and a teacher uh, saw that I needed help. And I would go and sit with her. She kind of doubled as the counselor. I would sit with her every day and just tell her everything that was going on, what was on my mind. And it took me from being a very angry, distant uh, young teenager to being okay with being open with people one-on-one to allow them to help me at that point. Are you still in contact with that teacher? Have you been able to reach back out and say what you've gone on to do? I have tried to find her, and you would think with social media it would be a lot easier. She's retired, and so I haven't successfully been able to connect with her. But i that is a mission of mine, to connect with her. We need to get her this podcast episode. So you mentioned, uh, you know, a, a number of different things now, um, your motivations early on, your motivations when you got that first position specifically in prevention. But now you're 17 years into that field. What is your why? I mean, I know some of those early motivations still carry through and they will probably be there forever. But what would you say your why is right now? What really continues to drive you through this profession? Because it can be tiring. It can be exhausting. It can be emotionally very heavy. But you show up every day and you do this better and more consistently than anyone I've ever known. What is your why? I, I really believe that I connect. And and I, if there's someone out there who doesn't have anyone they can connect with, I really believe that I connect. I don't stand in judgment of anyone. I, I don't uh, like when I see other people being judged. And I think that it's important that everyone has someone that's in their corner. And uh, I, I've been told at different points, well, you can't save everybody or you, you can't be there for everyone. Well, I can try. <laughs> and you can save somebody. <laughs> and I can save someone, absolutely. So as much as I can, I'm, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to be that person who's either there or can teach people to be there for, the, for just the people in their lives or the people they come across. Now, I mentioned, you know, how long you've been doing this. And this can be, you know, a really intense profession. You are a full-time prevention professional. You are a mom of four kids, which in itself is more than a full-time job. I have one, <laughs> and I know how exhausting that can be. You're a track coach. You give so much of your time and energy, not only to your kids, but to other people's kids, not only to other people's kids, but to adults. How do you make sure that your cup is full in giving that much of yourself to others? How do you make sure that your mental health, your behavioral health, your physical health 
are where they need to be so that you can take care of yourself and then therefore so you can continue to take care of others. What do you do? I hide. No. <laughs> you, she really does. You hide in your pantry. I do. And you you do Facebook live streams. I do. I do. And, you know, I had to make it okay for myself to hide and eat snacks by myself. When you have little kids, they're always wanting snacks. Yes. And so um, a few years back, I decided that that was just going to be my thing. I'm just going to take a break when I need a break. And, and I can't say that I always do it. And when I do it, oh, it's so filling. I absolutely love to just say, no, I'm in here alone, and no, you can't come in. <laughs> and now, because that precedence is set, they know it, and they know that's when, I'm, when I need a break. And I'll tell you, sometimes it is difficult because you get so invested in other people's lives. You, you want so much for people to be okay that you're giving up so much of your need to step away for a second you just push and push and push forward being an athlete I'm sure I learned to do that just push through it when even when it hurts even when you you feel exhausted just push through it and be able to recognize when there might be an injury brewing be able to recognize when no you need to rest today you need to recover today so I try to strike that balance definitely by hiding but then I also try and do some other things that just make me smile they're, they don't have to be big things. I like to write. I like to travel. I love to work out. And and honestly, I do love helping people. So there are times when that does feel very filling for my cup. You know, not, not that it takes away always. Certainly it can be draining and it's also filling. And by the way, with hiding in the pantry, you've turned that into a platform, pantry talk, where you're in there and, you know, you end up relaying something through the Facebook live stream that's actually beneficial to other parents. Or at the very least, other parents are seeing that and saying, oh, you're not the, you know, I'm not the only one. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, okay, you are going through the same thing that I am. And we've talked about that on so many other episodes. Yeah. Debbie Moked on the last episode, the power of someone saying, you're not the only person going through this, even if it isn't some monumental you know, life-changing event, even if it's the daily challenges of being a parent, it's nice for other parents to see that and say, oh, okay, yeah, this is exactly what I'm going through as well. So you've turned that, in, your escape is also now a platform. And it was on accident. And it was simply because people slipped into my direct messages. They sent me DMs that said, can you do more? Can you, because you're saying things that I wouldn't typically say. And I get that in classrooms too with kids. Like, can you come back for more? I, I didn't want to say this in class, but I want to tell you, you know, you, you see that with, with someone after the fact because they've connected to something that you've said and they do have that. It's not just me. I'm not the only one. Someone else has felt this and that feels like, oh my goodness, I, I need to connect to you because I, that makes me okay now. And even if they haven't hidden in the pantry themselves, I know there's plenty of parents out there who have wanted to at some point. <laughs> You're starting a revolution. Like it's going messages. to become a thing now, like hanging out in the pantry now. I totally get those messages. I have people who tell me they hide next to their bed or they hid in their closet or they stayed in the car in the driveway. <laughs> so yes, yes, a revolution. Hide, take a break. It's important to refill your cup. I have eaten a piece of chocolate cake in a locked closet since becoming the dad of a, a young girl. So I, I understand as well. So I, I can't empathize with that. I love it. Have snacks alone. 
What do you see as the biggest challenge right now for parents of preteens and teens when it comes to keeping their kids healthy and safe? There's a lot of topics that we talk about. What do you see as one of one of the main challenges or maybe a few of the main challenges right now? A few of the main challenges, if I go directly to what I hear from kids, being in the classrooms with so many kids every year, one of the things that I hear is I can't talk to my parents. We hear that so often, and there's many reasons why they can't talk to their parents or why they think they can't talk to their parents. You know, your kids start to see you as a parent and not just as a person, not just as a human. And to them, parent means something. You have been with you all of your life. They have been with you as a parent all of their life. And so they are making that statement or those statements based on who you are to them as a parent. So that's number one. How do we connect and communicate with a teen as they're going through the, these different stages of life? Um, the other is mixed um, mixed messages. Lots of mixed messages. So they hear one thing at home. These are the family values. This is what you represent. This is who you should be. This is my, These are my expectations of you. And then there's lots of things that are out there in the media, lots of different forms of media. And now they can create it themselves through social media. They can watch it. They can watch their friends or watch other people who are their ages across the country, across the world. And there's a lot of mixed messages. So kids are having a hard time filtering it, swimming through all of it um, without feeling like they're being pulled under. And so how do we make sure that the message that we want to prevail comes out? That needs to be said often, often. Because when you're a teen, number one, you're not dealing with a, a full brain. You know, you don't, you're not at that level where your brain is fully developed and you can always think logically. There's a lot of lack of impulse. There's a lot of poor decision-making. There's a lot of opportunities also to practice that. The more they practice it, the easier it becomes. So I would say between those two, the mixed messages and the difficulties with talking with parents, you just have a lot of, like, interruption in that just ease and development. That's not every child. Some kids... You're like, wow, they seem to get it. But those kids need to be talked to as well. It's not just leave them alone because they're on autopilot and they've got it. We hear from those kids too, like, yeah, no, people just leave me alone because I have good grades. And that kid's walking around like nobody cares because I have good grade, grades. So that those would just be a couple of things that I'd mentioned today. With the mixed messages, with the things that they're seeing on social media or through pop culture, how do we as parents balance that out? with providing healthier messages to kind of, again, balance that out without it coming across as a lecture. Or, you know, when you talked about, you know, um, them only seeing us as a parent, can we connect with them in a way where we share some of our experiences that, that we went through maybe at the age they're at or they're going through bullying and we went through that? Is there a way that we can do that where it doesn't come across as, you know, I, I don't want to say lecturing, but to where it's going to resonate with them. How does that message need to be crafted? And can we even try to counter that noise out there? I highly, highly recommend that communication on the level of this is who I was as a teen. You know, when kids are toddlers, we do a lot of storytelling with them, a lot of storytelling. And somewhere along the way, that storytelling sort of drops off or it starts to sound like lectures. When I was a teen or when I was in high school, you guys are this and you guys are that. When was the last time you said to your four-year-old, and I have a four-year-old, you know, when I was four, we used to do this. 
I've, I've, I've never talked like that to my four-year-old, and I have to my 12-year-old. So it's in the delivery. It is m- very much in the delivery because the delivery, it's going to fall on that person's ears in the way that they interpret it, but it does make a difference how you say it and what you look like when you say it. It makes a huge difference. It's the reason why if you say I love you to a toddler with a frown on your face, they're very confused. Well, so is that 13-year-old. They're very confused. And so if we can tell more stories and just connect with them on that, okay, as you're getting older, you know, I've been there before. I've, I've felt that before. I had a teacher who used to tell me this or I got in trouble for this one time or, you know, when we won this, I felt this way. And on both sides, not just the negative stuff, not just focusing on where you made the mistakes, where you also needed improvement or what you smelled like or who you dress, what you dressed like, who you hung out with. You know, all of those things are really important to humanize you as a parent. And Shane, you've probably heard me say this before, like your teen years are like dinosaurs to your kids. Like they know it existed, but they've never seen it. So take them through the museum, literally take them on a guided tour through the museum. And to our left, what we have here is some of you still have those jackets, right? You still have that jewelry. <laughs> 49ers starter jacket, reversible, gold <laughs> on one right. side, black on the other. Still have it. Put it on and let her put it on. <laughs> so th- those are just some of my really quick tips. It seems really simple, and it doesn't have to be so complicated. A few years ago, when we as a society were heavily fixated on the opioid crisis, as we should have been, it needed that level of attention. I remember you very clearly three, maybe even four years ago, saying that, you know, it's good that we've got this effort that we're focused here, but we can't ignore these substances over here. You predicted three or four years ago a resurgence of stimulants, cocaine and methamphetamine. The report just came out, I want to say within the last week or two, that shows, yes, in the eastern United States, fentanyl, as we believed it was, is responsible for the majority of the the overdose deaths. However, you can split the map almost right down the center, and in the western United States, it's actually methamphetamine that is causing those opi- those overdose deaths. What do you see then on the horizon within the next few years, whether it's related to substance use or any other topic that's not on our radar yet or maybe not on most parents' radar that we need to be preparing for in order to be ahead of the curve? I've thought about this many years as a preventionist. How do we stay on top of what's necessary to to get people, children, youth, to become self-sufficient adults? And if we just keep our eye just on one particular substance or one particular pro- um, problem, then I, I think we just keep missing the mark because we just keep chasing the target. And rather than chasing the target, Let's just sit with the person or the people. And if we look at it from a strength-based approach as opposed to always focusing on the risk, we don't have to so much worry about the target. Now, the target is important to know what we're specifically bringing into the conversation. And prevention doesn't change in the way that we build people up, in the way that we communicate, in the way that it's, it's, it's necessary to be consistent in the way that we build our families, those things don't need to change. So I think that if we can flip to a strength-based approach, what are we doing well? How do, how do we keep doing what we're doing well? And, and how do we keep ourselves happy and healthy as opposed to just targets moving, targets moving, targets moving. So more of a target. focus on the solution. 
more. Uh, so I think when we start to think about solutions, it's how do we solve the problem? So you're looking at something, putting the groundwork in before the problem even occurs, right. building up that armor, so to speak, before there ends up being an issue. Right. And and in the true meaning of prevention, how do we not get to a problem? You know, how do we deal with it before it becomes a problem? And how do we not let it get to a problem? Now, I understand that that preventative approach can vary depending on the topic, whether we're talking sure. about bullying, suicide, self-injury, substance use. Some of them are very issue-specific. Yes. But what are some of the things that you advocate that are more universal pieces that parents or adults, grandparents can put in place in advance regardless of what we're trying to prevent against? What are some of the ones that are some of your favorites? You know, I, I tend to talk about this vitamin C deficiency that we have, and that's a lack of connection and communication. We, we just have changed the way that we connect and communicate it and communicate. How often do kids now pick up the phone and call someone? They get someone's parents on the phone and they ask, may I speak to this person? Have your kids ever done that? I, you know, it's, it's just not standard anymore. So that type of connection, it doesn't look the same. Now, they don't have to necessarily do that. So the way that we guide them and how they connect with people, that may need to change. And then understanding from them, what, what is that looking like when you feel connected or bonded to someone at school or you feel connected or bonded to an adult? What does that look like for you? And then coaching them on, okay, here are some other ways that you can connect and bond. And if we don't feel connected and bonded to our kids, then what are some measures that we can take to have more bonding? Um, having more one-on-one -on -one time with them, having more conversations with them, doing small little activities, family walks after dinner or hanging out on the front porch or playing a little bit of catch. You know, just things that don't take much to do but time and actually taking that time to do it. It's not difficult. It's not complicated, but it requires that effort. We can't be complacent and allow that to happen. And, and I think it's important that it doesn't have to seem like it has to be groundbreaking. Because if we're looking for the groundbreaking solutions, those may never come for your specific family. But if we just keep breaking a little ground, little by little, well, then we get down a path that we're looking to get to, which is being connected and communicating so that if there is a problem or the concern for a problem you know, I hear kids saying, I don't know how to say no to vaping in the bathroom because everybody's doing it. If your child is telling you that, oh, my goodness, that's groundbreaking. That's a good sign. It's a it's If a they come sign. to you with that, that's a really good sign. Yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned just now kids talking about, you know, I'm seeing a bunch of people vaping in the bathroom or I encountered this at school the other day. You are out in schools constantly. You're out there doing presentations. You're facilitating life skills. You already mentioned earlier one thing that you're hearing. You're hearing like my parents, you know, that they're disconnected from their parents or they can't talk to their parents. That's the way they're phrasing it. What else are you hearing? Because kids trust you. I've seen it and I've seen how they talk to you because you break down those walls and those barriers. You make it clear that they're not going to be judged. And so you do hear a lot of things that I think a lot of other adults don't, whether it's the teachers at the school or the parents. What are you hearing that we as parents need to be aware of, that maybe we're not hearing? Um, recently, we just posted a short little video from a life skills class that we did, and it always shocks me that kids know why they're attracted to other people, why they like other people, be that their favorite aunt or uncle or cousin or a friend who they want to get to know better or a teacher. But what they have a hard time with is 
why people like them. There's something that has happened or is happening with kids in the way they relate to themselves and the way they see themselves. There's a lot of negative self-talk. There's a lot of comparison of them with other people, and it's much easier to compare now if I just click into Instagram or Snapchat. Uh, There's a lot of people don't care about me. They're not able to verbalize why they should be connected to the friends they're connected to, so they're just trying to connect to anybody who will have them as opposed to knowing their own worth and value. Um, These are probably some of the most common things. And then on the other end, with kids who are high achievers, who have excellent grades and are trying to get to those schools that are prestigious, um, those kids are going, going, going with no breaks. And the expectation is so high, they're afraid to fail. And, and I, I do hear that often, kids who are, they're just afraid to fail. And that pressure, it just, gosh, it's, it's so high, they don't know what to do. And so you see a lot of depression and anxiety. I, I'd never seen anxiety in probably the first maybe 12 years of my career. And now it's hard to go onto a school campus and not see a kid who's struggling with some sort of anxiety that day. We developed a youth presentation specifically on that topic because, I mean, that is so common. And the pressure, my goodness. I mean, I felt pressure in middle school and high school, but I wasn't an eighth grade kid saying, I have to get into this Ivy League school. I've met junior high kids that have said those things. And it's not, I want to, it's I have to. That's a that's a lot of pressure for an adult to, to shoulder. How much more so when you haven't developed your brain to the the extent you will as an adult, and you don't have the experience to draw upon that you have as as an adult. That's intense. And what we see is fatigue. So when we're in a classroom, I just spent 10 sessions at a school with ninth graders, and kids are falling asleep. And as I go over to find out, hey, what's going on? You know, you're really, really sleepy today. And they're saying, I was up all night or I've been up for the last week trying to get this done. Now, certainly you have responsibilities, you get them done, absolutely. And you shouldn't come to school every day fatigued. So between work and then trying to figure out how to get off of social media or whatever the combination is that keeps you up at night, fatigue is another factor that's just prevalent for this youth group. And there's even studies that have come out recently showing the lack of sleep in high school students. And that'll affect everything you do. If you do not get adequate sleep, your nutrition can be spot on. You know, you can put all those other pieces in place. You can only achieve so much if you can't get sleep. I mean, it's one of the most basic things that we need. And especially they're still growing. Their brains are still growing. Their bodies are still growing. That's, I mean, that's difficult. Right. Yeah. Uh, A few few questions back, you talked about connection, connection being connected. You know, and, and I agree with you. That may be the biggest preventative tool, the biggest tool we have if we need to intervene, connection. And you actually recently released a book that creates an activity that allows parents and their kids to connect. Uh, the book's available on Amazon. It's called I'll Write It Down, a two-way chat diary. What is the idea behind the book, and how do you feel it could benefit parents and their kids? By the way, we will link to the the book in the show notes. What was your motivation behind that? What were you hoping to do with the creation of that book? So I've kept a a diary with my kids for the last few years. Uh, My 12-year-old, I've kept one with him since he was a a little over nine. And what it gave us the opportunity to do, and I didn't create the idea. Someone gave me the idea, 
And what it gave me the opportunity to do was to find out things that are going on for him that he doesn't want to say because he's afraid of how I might respond. So if I see on his face, he looks like he's afraid to say it to me, I'll just say, okay, go write it down. And so he'll write it in the diary, put it under my pillow. I read it. I write him back. I put it under his pillow. And now we have a conversation going back and forth. And we've had situations where he's like, I don't want to write. I don't want to write to you because you're just, you don't care. Okay, well, write it down and tell me that. And he's writing furiously at the table. And I'm like, okay, it looks like you're getting all of that out on paper. So then we don't have our emotions just flinging at each other back and forth. And, and really it's about communicating in an effective way and, and getting out things that we just might not feel comfortable saying all the time. And then also we pass funny things back and forth. So he'll come back to me and he'll say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you said that. You know. So now we have this thing between the two of us where he knows like that's a, that's a mommy and I thing. And now my nine-year-old has one as well. And he, he gets really serious and deep with it. He writes really, really serious and deep things. And you know where it came from, Shane? When I was in the third grade, I asked my mom if she would stay home, if she wouldn't. Um, I, I told her if she would give up what she was doing, I'd give up candy. And I wrote a contract to her. And I signed it, and I left it on the dresser for her to sign, and she left. And I thought she signed it, and she didn't sign it. I was really disappointed. I was like, why, why would you not sign that for me? And so then I was determined. I was like, okay, that's okay. I'm still going to give up this candy, even though you said that you're not going to. And later, she had some opportunities to write me back. And so just in that spirit of being able to communicate just on a – all I'm doing is watching and looking and reading your words, and I can get what you have to say completely because I'm not distracted by what you look like and what you sound like. I just get exactly what you're saying. So the, the um, motivation came from just my past of being able to write things and then someone giving me that idea of writing to kids and I've shared that with parents so many times do it do it do it and people seem to have a hard time with how do I keep going in this so I finally said you know what I'm just going to create it and give people the opportunity to just take it and do it you don't even have to think about going to the store and figuring out how to start here you go here's here's a package just do it because it makes a huge difference it sounds like a, a really good way to like you said, see exactly what it is that they're saying without any likelihood of misinterpretation because you know the facial expressions, the body language, whatever, the actual words that are being said. And there's a lot of things that people maybe are ready to write down that they're not ready to say out loud yet. I think of the crisis text line and one of those resources that we include where maybe that person is not ready to reach out to you know the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. But they can type those words. They can text those words. And so this is a way that makes it more comfortable in a way. And I just absolutely love the idea because a little while ago, I was just talking about what's on the horizon, what do we need to be preparing for? And rather than that next you know, difficulty coming over the horizon, we need to be building up our strengths in advance regardless of whatever's coming over the horizon. And this is one of those ways that we do that. We create that communication connection and we create that relationship. So I love the idea. Thank you. As we close, what is the main takeaway or piece of advice or suggestion that you would like to leave for the parents and those listening to the show? Now, obviously, you've mentioned some very impactful things already. Communication. I mean, that's right at the forefront. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to include, you know, something that a parent can benefit from or maybe something actionable that they can implement upon listening to the show? You know, if we were all representing a country and heading to an Olympic Games, you know, and we were all waving our family flags and, and this is these are my colors and this is, you know, the name of my family, we would be able from a distance to see just people's flags and colors and, and who is a part of their family. But there's something that brings that family there together as a team and for that family to operate well in this game, and this particular game is life, right? If, if they're to operate well in life, they've got to be coached and they've got to practice. And so I, I really simplify a lot of things because I don't think that it has to be, like I said, something that's really groundbreaking. And this may be groundbreaking for someone to understand if I can just be the coach in my kid's life and I do need to give them the skills and I also need to be there to support them and, and celebrate with them. If we can create this relationship that works effectively, then we can all win a gold medal. You know, And truly in this game of life, we can all win a gold medal. And so I, that, that's my little simple, simple um, suggestion. Like if, just be with your kids, coach them up, and celebrate with them when they're getting it done. Often the most effective answers are the most simple. The most effective solutions are the most simple. Dronda, thank you so much for being here on Win This Year. You will be back, hopefully, in the near future as a co-host. So I thank you again. It. Thank you very much, Shane. And as always on Win This Year, we want to give you three resources. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or you are helping someone who is, there is help, there is hope, there are resources available. Number one is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. You can reach them by calling 1-800-273-8255. That spells out 1-800-273-TALK. Teen Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-248-8336. That spells out 1-800-248-TEEN, T-E-E-N. And the crisis text line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741-741. If you are going through a difficult experience, I want to encourage you. There is hope. Things can get better, but it is important to reach out and to ask for help. And for those of you who are noticing someone who is struggling, it is important that we reach out and we help them that we start the conversation and we let them know we care and we will help. Thanks once again to our guest, Geronda Montano. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear at notmykid.org. winthisyear at notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes, along with all the links for Not My Kid social media. I'm Shane Watson, Public Information Officer and Prevention Specialist for Not My Kid. Thank you again for listening to Win This Year.